This evening's reading is from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Thank you, Nick, for reading for us. Thank you, Ban, too, for leading us in our songs. Uh, As we come to this passage, uh, let's pray and ask the Lord uh, for his help. We read in verse 13 that God has given us of his Spirit. And our Father, it is our prayer this evening as we come to this, your word, authored by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John, We ask that your spirit in us would open our eyes and our hearts, that we might understand your words and that we might apply it to our lives, that you might change us to become like the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, one of my favourite topics at school was geography. I love a good flag. Uh, Capital cities, I've got them. And uh, the odd volcano Uh, is worth watching, isn't it? But to be honest, the one topic that sticks in my mind from geography was that of the Oxbow Lake. Does anyone else remember what that is? Okay, for some reason that's really important for us to know. If you don't know what it is, let me tell you. Uh, A river that um, begins in its source in the hills, over the years will flow down through the landscape, and often when it hits a flat plain, it will meander um, from side to side as it goes out towards the sea. 
And sometimes those meanders are so severe that the river kind of loops back around onto itself and creates a thin neck of land, which then the river then pushes through and creates a new main channel. And that leaves the loop to one side. It leaves it as a kind of lake, an oxbow lake, and over time the river moves away. And over the decades it can move quite a long way away. But the lake, because it's lost its connection to the source, it kind of goes stagnant and dries up. There's algae on the surface, there's kind of that dark, sticky clay mud around the edges, that putrid smell that just sticks in your throat a little bit. See, the pool was once connected to a great river that flowed through the land, but it's lost that connection and it's become stagnant. The water in it, it's still water. It tastes like water, as long as you kind of uh, shut your eyes and hold your nose a bit. And it will still meet your thirst somewhat. It will still clean you up if you were to wash in it. Now imagine that you live in a village by the edge of this lake. And this water is the only water that you've ever known. This water would be the standard of water for you. It would be the best water that you could possibly have, as far as you're concerned. And so it has real value to you. But of course, there is water that tastes fresher and smells better and washes more cleanly. The water in the pool, it holds within it a distant memory of something that's been lost. The connection that it once had to its source. Still with me? One day, someone comes to your village and they see what you've been drinking. And they recognize that even though this water to you has been precious, that you really have no idea what you're drinking and that you've been settling for stagnant water that's a poor imitation of the real thing. So they take you on a journey back to the river, back up to the source in in the mountains, And there you discover where it comes out of the spring on the mountainside, the water is so different, pure, clean, fresh, thirst-quenching. You throw yourself into the stream and you drink deeply from it and you think, all those years I thought I had water. Of course, it did bear some resemblance to it, but this, this is real water. My life will never be the same, and I must go and tell the others. Why am I telling you that story? Well, 1 John chapter 4, John is going to talk to us about love, about real love. He's going to take us from where we are back to the source, to God himself, And as we see and experience this real love, we'll come to realize that the world's love from which we've been drinking is merely a stagnant pool in comparison. And John has a purpose in taking us there. His aim is that when we have drunk deeply from this love, when we're cleansed by it, when we swim in its streams, that we will then share that love with others. That we will, as he says three times, love one another. That's his aim, that we love one another. 
And we're going to structure our time together around those three statements of love one another. Uh, You can see on the service sheets, just on the back, uh, there's an outline of where we're going. I'd encourage you to have that there. Make notes if you'd like to, um, along with keeping uh, your Bible open. Verse 7 and 8. Love one another, for God is love. The first, love one another, is is an appeal. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. I look at the reason he gives. We are to love one another because of who God is. He states it in two ways. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, one another, for love is from God. And verse 8, because God is love. Now let's think on this for a moment. It's important, I think, to begin with to see what this is not saying. Now first, it, it is not saying that love is God. That's an idolatry. It's an idolatry that our culture sometimes has. We make love into our God and we worship it. We live our lives for romance or for sex or for friendship or for family. We can turn good things like the love of a spouse or love of our friends or our kids, good things, into ultimate things in which we then find our purpose, our meaning, We place our hopes in those things or we look to them for our salvation in life. We make our lives all about the love of those things. But that, if you like, is to be swimming in the Oxbow Lake instead of the river. It's still valuable to us, but it is, by comparison, a poor substitute that will not satisfy John wants to take us to the source, to the God who is love and from whom all love flows. It's the first misunderstanding. It doesn't say love is God, it says God is love. Here's a second misunderstanding. God is love does not mean that love is all God is. Now, sometimes people who claim to be Christians will speak like this that love is the summation of God's entire being. And they might say this in order to justify all kinds of sinful living. So it goes something like this. God is love, and therefore he would not judge me. Or perhaps more specifically, God is love, and therefore he would approve of any consensual, intimate relationship. And I'm sure you've heard that kind of thing. It's as if God is love, is all God is, and so his love kind of overrules everything else. But that can't be right. And we know that even from 1 John, if you've been here through the series. In fact, in the first sermon that we heard on this series, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, if you remember, this is the message we heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness... 
We lie and do not practice the truth. And in the rest of the Bible, there are many other statements about who God is. God is spirit. God is just. God is merciful. God is holy. God is a consuming fire. See, clearly love is not all God is. We can't use this statement to rule out everything else the Bible says about God. And we certainly can't use this statement to justify anything we want to do. But nonetheless, John does say God is love. So what does that actually mean? It means that God is love within himself. It is his nature in his inmost being. Now these are deep pools to swim in. There exists within the triune God a relationship of perfect, other-centred, selfless devotion between Father, Son and Spirit. One God in three persons, that kind of God can have love within himself. That's what John means when he says God is love. Perfect love stretching back to eternity, each member of the Trinity always loving the others. Now that means that God is the eternal source and origin of love. And our human experience of love, that which we know, has come from his eternal nature. So you know random collision of atoms and molecules can generate love. It is because our triune creator is love that we know love at all as human beings. Now we need to start to ground this truth It follows that because God is love in his nature, he cannot act in a way towards us that is not ultimately loving. Or to put it positively, all his activity is loving activity. And that's true when it's obvious to us, when he's gracious and merciful and compassionate. We get that. But it must also be true when it isn't obvious to us what he's doing and when we don't like it. His teaching means that his discipline of us is loving. His justice is loving. And even when he judges, he does so in love. And so, therefore... When we love in the way that God loves, in light, in truth, in righteousness, in selfless devotion, we show ourselves to be children of God. John says this in verse 7. Whoever loves, that is, whoever loves as God loves, has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love in this way does not know God at all. So here's why John teaches us this. What's his aim? What's his purpose? Well, he's taking the truth that we know, that God is love in himself, and he's using it to urge us as God's children, those who know him, 
to be like him in this way. That God is love means that we who know him must love like him. It's a sign. It shows that we are authentic children of a heavenly father. Love one another for God is love. That's the first thing. And it's the trickiest thing, just to encourage you, um, the trickiest point to get our heads around uh, tonight. Second, verse 9 to 11. We ought to love one another as God has loved us in Jesus. Now John has already said to this church, 3 verse 18, that just talking about love is meaningless. That love's not shown by words, but in deeds and in truth. And of course we all know that to be true, don't we? We've Almost all of us will have had painful experience in the past where people who said that they loved us claimed to love us but broke promises or let us down or betrayed us or abused us. Love's shown by her deeds. And so it's all very well saying that God is love, but how can we be sure? Well, verse 9. John turns from teaching that God is love in his nature to the flesh and blood manifestation of that love in history, verse 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, if before we were swimming in deep pools, we're now uh, stepping under the waterfall. How do we know God loves us? He sent his Son into the world that we might live through him. How do we know God loves us? He sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So here we see the flesh and blood form, the the manifestation of the love of God. First, the incarnation. God sent his son into the world, verse 9. Although notice, it's not just his son, is it? In fact, it's his only son, his beloved one, his most precious gift. It was a costly selfless act of the Father to send his only son to this world. And he sent him into the world. Just think on that. The son lived in heaven, a place of perfection, of safety, of security, of sinlessness, of glory and light. And he came into this world a place of darkness with all its wickedness and cruelty and suffering and sin and shame. Jesus took on flesh to live in our brokenness and our mess with all the ugliness of sinful humanity. God sent his son into that because he loved us so that we might be moved from death to life through him. 
And there's more. For the sending of the Son was not merely to the world, but to the cross. Verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I've been struggling all week to say the word propitiation, <laughs> um, and I've, I'm trying my hardest to, to get it right um, tonight. It's the kind of word that perhaps we sort of wince at. We think, oh, no, that's a tricky kind of Bible word. I don't understand what that means. Um, but it's a really important word. It's a translation of a Greek word that has a very precise meaning in the Bible. It means a sacrifice to appease God's wrath against sin. It's a sacrifice to appease God's wrath against sin. Let me try and give you a little bit of an illustration. I wonder, when you were young, uh, on a hot day, did you ever try and use a magnifying glass to burn a hole in something? Anyone ever try that? And what happens is the magnifying glass, it kind of catches, and I've realized now that we live in Scotland and a hot day is unfamiliar um, to many of us, but um, if there was a hot day, um, the magnifying glass kind of catches the hot rays of the sun and concentrates them into one specific point so that it burns away whatever it's focused on. And I remember sitting in a physics lesson once. You know, there's one, you sort of get the high stools and a, a desk with a gas tap on the top. And I was sitting there, and my mate Tom was leaning out of the window with a magnifying glass, kind of leaning over, and with it was setting fire to his pencil case. And this kind of smoke and plasticky smell just started to um, fill the room. Now, that's not a recommendation. Don't try that, um, unless... Uh, you really want to. What's, what's going on there? Well, something bigger is being focused in and concentrated. At the cross, Jesus Christ took into his body all the sins of his people. He took my sin, your sin, and all the sins of all God's chosen people for all time and carried them in his body. And there, in that moment, the righteous judgment of God, God the Father, that was going to burn like a blistering desert sun upon the sins of his people, was then gathered and focused into a white-hot heat upon his Son. And so at Calvary, the wrath of God on our sin was burnt out in the heart of Jesus Christ. There he became a propitiation. The wrath of God was satisfied, appeased, exhausted, so that it would never fall on anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ. Now, why would God send his son to do that? It wasn't because we were worthy of love. Now, our sins make us unlovable. It wasn't because we loved him. It was because he loved us despite our sin. 
God determined that sending Jesus to the cross was the only way for his just wrath against sin to be satisfied without destroying us at the same time. And so that's what he did. And God the Son willingly gave his life to do that for us. What love God has for us. Now we could spend the whole sermon on those two verses. But let us not forget John's purpose. He again makes it clear in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See the if and the ought there in that verse? John is persuading us. If God loved us like this in Jesus, this costly, selfless, sacrificial love, if he did that for us, in view of that love, we ought to love one another. It is our duty to love each other, sinners that we are, in that same way. Real love for one another is cross-shaped love. And that is what we see in the local church. This is why brothers and sisters serve one another sacrificially, giving generously of their time, ministry gifts and money for the work of the gospel, as our new members promised earlier on. We love in this way because we've been loved in this way by God in history. It looks like loving each other when we sin against each other. It looks like repentance and forgiveness and praying for those we find challenging. It looks like speaking the truth in love because you know it's the best thing for the other person even though that may risk your friendship with them. See, we love each other like this in this costly way because Christ died for us when we did not love him. And it looks like walking with each other in the mess of this life. Like the woman who takes her sister in Christ to the chemo appointment and who sits there waiting till it's over, till it's time to go home. It looks like the Christian brother who visits the hospital bed to hold the hand of his friend and pray with him in the difficult hours. And it looks like a church family gathered round the graveside of one of their number. We ought to love one another as God has loved us in Jesus. And I want to encourage you, Chalmers Church, this evening, that imperfect though we are, I do think, by God's grace, that this is what we see in this church family. And we should be thankful. Okay, we're on to our third and final point tonight, verse 12 to 21. I know it's a lot of verses, but this won't be any longer than the other points. We're coming to the conclusion. If we love one another in this way, by the Spirit, we gain confidence on the day of judgment. So verse 12. Now verse 12 begins another set of these remarkable statements. 
If he's begun to persuade us to love one another by speaking about loving God's nature, verse 7 to 8, and then God's love expressed in history, verse 9 to 11, well, he now speaks of God's love in our experience, verse 12 to 16. Let me read. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now John's saying that the unseen God, as we believe and confess his son Jesus Christ as our saviour, then comes to live to abide within our hearts by his Spirit. And the summary of that is in verse 16. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Not merely to believe it, but to experience it within us, to know it. And so this is the chain of how God's love works. It's sourced in God, revealed in history through his Son, experienced in our hearts by his Spirit, and then experienced as we love one another, it's experienced among us. Sourced in God, revealed in history through Jesus, experienced in our hearts by the Spirit, and as we love one another. And John says that in this way, God's love is perfected in us. That raises a bit of a question because you know, we might say, well, I thought God's love was already perfect. How can something that's perfect be perfected if it's already perfect? You know, it doesn't make much sense. But the answer, I think, is that God's love is perfected in the sense that it was once held within God and it is now being experienced in our own hearts and among us. It has new effects upon us that it didn't have before. And in particular, the effect of the love of God that we now experience together by the Spirit is that we gain assurance. And that's where John wants to take us uh, next. It's in these verses that we find the answer as to why John's included this section on love in this letter. What's the letter all about? What have we seen all the way through chapters 1 to 3 and the the first part of verse 4? Well, it's all about assurance, about being confident He wants his readers to be confident that they do know God and to know for sure that they have eternal life. The reason that he needs to write that is because there are a bunch of other people uh, who have left the apostles' teaching and and the church and they've kind of set up their own church over here and they claim to have the real Christianity. And that's left John's readers in doubt. Are we true Christians? Are we on the right track? Have we made a mistake? Maybe we should go and join them. They've lost their assurance. They've begun to fear that they may be under God's wrath at the judgment day. 
And so John writes that our experience of loving one another gives us reason to be assured. Verse 20, look at these others, John says. They claim to love God, but they hate their brothers and sisters, i.e. they hate you because you don't follow them. In this they show themselves to be false, counterfeit, liars. They cannot truly love God, and they show you, show you this by their hatred of other believers. They should be in fear of God's judgment, but you, you need not fear. That same word perfected comes again in verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So this is the effect of the love of God perfected in us. That chain of, of God's love kind of goes to work as we, as we know him in his nature, that God is love. As we believe that God sent his son to bear his wrath in our place. As we experience that love in our hearts by his spirit, and then as we experience his love in the church, as we love one another, as he has loved us, as we get all of that... Well, so we find that we gain real assurance, absolute confidence, because it shows that we are God's children, and that therefore, judgment will not fall upon us. There's no need to fear the day of judgment. We've reached the, the end of our time together. Now, brothers and sisters, I wonder, perhaps for some of us, we've just lost sight of how much we're loved. Perhaps we've just been drinking from the stagnant pool, and we've just forgotten. And I trust and I hope that tonight, this John has helped you to return to the source, to the God who is love, to the God who sent his Son to die to bear the wrath of the Father in your place and the God who sends his spirit into your hearts to reassure you and to help you to love each other. Let's drink deeply from the love of God and then love one another as he has loved us. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognise before you the truth of these words, that God is love, and that you, in your great love for us, sent your Son to be the propitiation for our sins. O oh Lord God, we thank you that he has paid for every last drop, and that we have, need to have no fear on judgment day. Father, we thank you too that you have sent us your spirit, that you live within us, that we can experience your love in our hearts. And we thank you too that you have sent your spirit to us so that we might love each other as you have loved us. And Lord, in that we confess our sins before you. We know that we've not always done that. 
There have been times when we have not loved others as we should, and we're sorry. And we ask that you would transform our hearts, that we might really love each other as the Lord Jesus has done for us. In his name we pray. Amen.